The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video. As seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. Just talking before we hit record of the days when we were so excited to have a 33.6 or a 56K modem. And you could watch a postage size, five frames per second video. Oh, it was amazing. Maybe you got 10 frames. Do you remember yeah, those days? Yeah, yeah. I wanted to get my V90 modem. I couldn't afford it. But <laughs> <laughs> This was 1995, 96. Yeah. It's a long time ago. Wow. Well, let's jump in. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So our guest today is Reza Razul who is the CTO of Real Networks. That's right. We are talking about Real Networks. Um, they are the, the, real thing. the grandpapa of the... They are the real thing. Uh, and by the way, I was watching that video back in 1995, 96, uh, and it was, a, it was a Real Networks Kodak, and it was a Real Networks player, as I think many of our listeners can uh, remember back to those, to those awesome days. So, uh, Reza, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Draw. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. Looking forward to chatting to you about what's uh, new at Real Networks. That's right. Well, I know you guys are working on uh, some super exciting things, and and so we're gonna we're gonna jump right in. But uh, you know, before we get into the main subject, uh, why don't you share a quick overview of your background and how you came to the company? Wow. Okay. Well, you can probably tell from my accent that I'm not a, a West Coaster. So I, I grew up in London. But, but was actually born in Cape Town in South Africa, the tip of Africa. But I grew up in London from the age of eight and uh, went to school there, physics at King's College, and, but then fell into computer science and specifically in the area of uh, graphics and video. One of the first startups, even before the term startup was, was known, was a company called Lightworks. And we set about making the world's first what was called a non-linear editor, the ability to edit a full-length feature film, a Hollywood feature film on a computer. And I wonder if you remember who the players were in those days, companies like C-Cube. They've made the first JPEG chip, and we got beta samples of that chip, built a board, and then also contracted with a, an audio board company, and we, we rewrote, I rewrote the DSP code on that audio board. And before we knew it, we had the makings of a an editing machine and then with some revolutionary software written on the dos operating system oh, we remember that one <laughs> you know it yes you remember yeah. that one in those days when when you had a, a certain address space whose dos with the extender we we said and this is pre-windows so we wrote our own window manager you know how hard can it be and uh, before we knew it we had this really beautiful editing machine that sold like hotcakes in hollywood and so i found myself traveling a lot to los angeles and on the strength of that of those relationships that i built up i moved my young family to la and managed to dine out on the success of Lightworks. Lightworks won a technical Oscar, technical Emmy Award, and was sold off to Tektronics. And so I got the choice of the consulting projects in, in Hollywood. 
And then I, I fell in with a group of uh, Seattle engineers, and we were the founders of a company called Widevine Technologies. So Widevine was, the mission was to, it was a broad mission, add value to streaming media. And we, we focused that mission a bit more in the area of, of we envisaged uh, a period where movies would be bought and sold online um, and, and watched online. And, uh, and, and then we thought, well, there needs to be a way of securing that monetization stream, securing it and monetizing it. And so uh, we, we came up with a software DRM. And after many years, that company was sold to Google. So Google now owns Widevine, and it secures probably about 40% of the Maybe forty percent of the world's um, online television. Yeah, um, I think Widevine's pretty oh. dominant, right? And so after that um, experience, I thought I was all that for startups, and so I created this consulting practice, which which peddled a a CTO as a service model. It was, I think, revolutionary for its time. The notion was that. We kissed a lot of frogs. We, we met a lot of startups, but then we'd pick winners and place a CTO into the startup, marry them up with the development team, and take a large part of the reimbursement as a convertible note. And as you can imagine, that's like uh, rolling, rolling the dice in Vegas one after the, <laughs> after the other. So it was a good run for a long while. It afforded a, a great lifestyle for a few people. And, uh, and then uh, eventually, when, when it stopped, uh, I, I took the position at Real Networks. So that's, I'm, I'm here, CTO at Real Networks. Yeah, that, that's really a fascinating journey that you have uh, they've gone through and uh, ended up in a company that, as Mark said, you know, is really one of the pioneers, the icons of, of the industry. And I definitely remember, and uh, many of our listeners probably also remember the days Real Networks uh, pioneered streaming of media over the internet, first with uh, audio only, with a real audio player, and right. uh, then with a real video player, streaming audio and video together. At that same time, actually, I was working at IBM Research, and the real player was a plugin into a browser. So if you wanted to stream uh, media from your website, from a website, uh, you'd have to install a plugin into your browser that would decode the audio and video in the real codec uh, format. Uh, what we developed at IBM was actually pure Java implementation of a video player. So with our implementation, wow. you would you would go to a website, the Java classes of the player, the audio and video player and decoders would uh, download to your browser without any installation because that was pure Java. It ran on the VM. And then immediately it would start streaming the audio and video uh, to that website. So that was a very cool uh, solution, like you know, streaming video uh, without requiring a plugin. But those were very early days and not really the mainstream of IBM. So it kind of uh, remained a research project. But... Those are my, are my memories from the real codec. And since then, I think Real Networks has gone through several pivots. I remember a streaming uh, media server that was also open source. I remember DVD ripping software and a codec. I think recently a video codec as well. But now, if I go to the Real Networks uh, website, I see that everything is about uh, face recognition which you know, definitely is a very hot topic uh, uh, today for uh, various use cases. So 
Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the solution and why you made uh, the shift and focusing now on face recognition? Well, I, I don't want to downplay the legacy of the company and the nostalgia that we feel when we, when we hear that uh, dial-up sound to the internet. I, I'm sure if you close your eyes, you can hear it now. <laughs> but, well, thanks there you go, Jor. It's on this soundbite. <laughs> but, you know, that's the legacy business of, uh, of the company. And it, I'm not going to uh, dwell on why we, uh, we're not uh, strong in the West, but it was the subject of a lawsuit against Microsoft. And there was an out-of-court settlement. You can read about it. And we, uh, we went on and, and, and pursued other things. Sure. So talk to us about then facial recognition. How, how did you get there? And tell us what you're doing. Right. So, so um, as the incoming CTO three years ago, uh, I did a survey of, uh, of the assets, the technical assets and the capabilities of, of Real Networks, visited all the centers of, of excellence around, around the world and uh, found a very vibrant pocket of engineers that were underutilized. And these were PhDs that were writing mobile app code. And we looked at some of the things, some of the big challenges facing us, and I challenged them to make a proposal um, stepping out of their current work schedule and thinking bigger than, than they were being tasked to to accomplish and so i got a proposal well let, let me step back we we uh, at real networks um had started this um project uh, this pro uh, this product called real times and real times is a way that you can back up your mobile phone to the cloud and there's a you know cloud storage um, subscription but the software makes little movies out of your photos and and videos and sends them to you allows you to to share them and well the the week after we we launched that <laughs> google launched google photos and then after that came apple with a similar product and facebook with a similar product and now it's a it's a fairly ubiquitous use case you can get get these memory making applications quite commonly but the real times application and platform allowed you to back up your camera roll but we wanted to index it in richer ways and so one of our customers is we'd we'd um, syndicated this out to mobile operators uh, in the form of an SDK and they could reskin the SDK as their own app um, Verizon for instance um, the Verizon cloud app is powered by the real networks real times SDK And they said, hey, we'd like to be able to index the camera roll by face. And uh, so we challenged our team in, in, in Eastern Europe <laughs> to, uh, to come up with a solution. And before we knew it, we, we, had, we had a solution that was demoable um, as a prototype. And I recall showing it to Rob, Rob Glazer, the founder of our company. And he said, you know, Reza, I, I don't want another me too photo facial recognition solution. I want us to be the best facial recognition for live video. After all, we're, we're the company that invented streaming media. We went back and uh, challenged our team and, and thought about, okay, what does it take to 
not just be a SaaS-based photo facial recognition solution, because there, there were then about half a dozen of them, but what, what would it take to solve the problem of live video? And you know, when you, when you think about live video, you're, you're also thinking about people walking past cameras that they're, not, they're unaware, they're, they're not looking at the camera, so it's not That's well right. aligned, it's blurred, the face may be occluded, it may be poorly lit. Contrast that with passport photographs and visa photographs, which are well aligned. And so it required us to build a facial recognition model that was very robust to what what's called the in the wild case. And it also had to be very fast in order to keep up with the frame rate of video. And there's another component of it that we predicted we were going to need, and we needed it to be very small to improve its embeddability. So explain the components of Safer then. What are the functional blocks? And uh... Yeah, so, so this um, mission about being the best for live video, really the mission dictates the architecture. And if, if your mission is to handle video, um, you can't ask your customer to pipe the video up to the cloud. You know, many of the SaaS providers say, okay, we'll solve this in our cloud. Pipe your video to the cloud and we will process it at a dollar for a thousand API calls. Mm-hmm. Well, that seems cheap. So what, what do we need to do that? Well, it's when you're talking about video coming at you 30 frames a second with multiple faces in each frame, that dollar gets burnt through really quickly. And then when you're talking about an installation, let's say a a sports stadium with a thousand cameras, it just becomes impractical. You'd need such a wide video pipe to be able to pipe that video up to the cloud. It becomes impractical. So you have to partition the problem in a different way. And so the way we've partitioned it is we've separated face detection from face recognition. So we do the face detection as close to the camera as possible, preferably inside the camera. And then the communication between the face detector and the face recognition now becomes a low bitrate connection, 15 kilobyte restful API call, maybe once a second. Mm. And that dramatically transformed the scalability of the solution and uh, allowed us to handle live video on mass for multiple multiple cameras yeah so so then we um the components of the system is 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 a cloud service and for some users for some um, customers that cloud can actually reside in your own data center or can actually run on a local pc that cloud service depending on the scale and then there are a couple of sdks that we provide with this the platform one we call the safer SDK, and the other one we call the safer embedded SDK. One one is meant for embedding into devices um, such as cameras, and the other is um, let's say you're developing a mobile app, uh, you'd use the safer SDK. How did we build it? Well, we 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 leveraged the available TensorFlow toolset. We did try some others. But, um, you know, Google's great act of philanthropy to the industry of, uh, of publicizing the, the, the TensorFlow toolset meant that solution providers could focus on their solution rather than 
dwelling on the secret source of the tool set and yeah, really it's focus a really on good web. contribution yeah. yeah i agree it's a great con- i mean it's analogous to the contribution when when real networks made the rtsp protocol mm-hmm. um, public it first published that it it it, it basically enabled a whole industry, right, and also the uh, the Helix uh, open source uh, streaming server, which supported that protocol. Indeed, indeed, yeah, all all <laughs> you know, wonderful building blocks upon which you know an industry could build a business. Yeah. Now, Reza, the face detection you mentioned that that's you try and push that even all the way into the camera. So mm-hmm. does does it mean that you have to have a safer enabled camera for the system to work? No, we've implemented it in software. It could sit outboard of the camera. So many of the existing cameras are relatively dumb IP cameras. And so you locate an edge server close to the camera. We've ported that to a number of platforms. We started off with Mac in the early development days, then Windows, then Linux, then we GPU accelerated it. We've recently ported it even to the ARM processor in the Raspberry Pi module. Mm-hmm. So these things can become very, very small, can even be housed in the body of the camera in some solutions. But there's a new generation of cameras coming down the pipe. You'll see them hitting the market, smarter cameras with AI processors inside the camera. And that's going to transform this whole space. When you talk about recognizing faces in video mm-hmm. um, as opposed to recognizing in still images, you mentioned the uh, the challenge of being able to, to do this at a frame rate of video where, where you get, say, as an example, 30 frames per second. Each one of them has faces and you need to recognize um, uh, the faces in each frame. But actually, you also have an advantage when doing face recognition on video in that you have that face many times in in in, uh, in many of the frames so you get right. uh, the same information again and again at slightly different you know lighting or or um or angle or something like that as as the face moves through the camera the camera's um field of view so is this something that can help in the face recognition uh, process or or it just uh, creates more work for you no, it, it does, in fact, help. In fact, it improves the confidence that it's a real human being. In fact, if the face did not change frame after frame, you should raise a red flag that you're probably being spoofed, that someone's holding mm. up a big photograph to the entry kiosk mm. or the, 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 door, the door entry system. And, and so we, in addition to face detection, face recognition, we have a number of measures for liveness detection. You know, one, one of the measures forces you to, to move your face. So um, we prompt you in one of the cases to smile, to unlock. Mm-hmm. And so that smile is detected. So when we look at the face, we're not only detecting the face and recognizing it, we're determining age and gender and sentiment analysis so we can determine we we can we can figure out whether you're smiling or not so we challenge it's it's a challenge to prove liveness but the point that you mentioned that the face the face is a 3d structure Mm -hmm. and so when you're in front of a camera and you are doing normal movements of your head left right we can detect that and we can glean that 3d structure from the series of 2d 
representations of the face. And that gives us another check mark for liveness and allows us to increase the confidence that this is a real human being presented. Mm-hmm. But it, does it also improve the rate of uh, de- face detection of knowing who that uh, person is? If, if you have this uh, uh, you know, view of different angles or 3D models, c- can you base detection on, on that? Or it just uh, helps you to prove that you, know, you, you framed the, the face correctly in terms of being an actual human face, and then you can go and, and recognize it you know, in a regular, uh, compared to regular photo. The way the industry has gone, the, the way that industry has partitioned these products that serve this space is that they've broken up face acquisition. They actually create a category of products, face acquisition products that don't do any recognition or even, I mean, I guess they do detection, but their, their sole purpose is to look at a series of frames and pick what is the best representative frame that has a face in there properly oriented with least occlusion and we have such a, um, a solution and then there's still plain old vanilla photo facial recognition that comes after that mm-hmm. the the notion that um, you could use multiple adjacent frames of an individual to improve the accuracy of And maybe even speed of recognition is a, a new thing and something that we leverage but it's not common in the in the industry yes so you mentioned uh, speed and uh, I noticed in uh, your documentation that you talk a lot about uh, the performance of safer and how it's uh, twice as fast as any other software implementation uh, we also like to pride ourselves as a On performance or video encoding speed is also twice as fast as any other HVC video encoder and software out there in video encoding it's very important because if you have higher density you can encode more channels you can have better frame rate you can have better video quality when you're doing live video uh, why is the performance so important when you're doing face recognition yeah great great question and um, I agree with you it's it's analogous to video encoding and You know the speed translates into dollars and so if you're trying to if you've got a cloud encoder and you want to and you've got a faster cloud encoder you you've saved your customer compute cost but is it an absolute existential requirement for the, the application yes there, there are situations where you want recognition to be as quick as possible in a door entry system you Where we've replaced all of our badges uh, nobody uses their badges anymore you come up to a door there's an iPad uh, on the inside of the glass door and you walk up it recognizes your face it prompts you to smile to unlock and the door opens now if that took three four seconds that would just be an unacceptable user experience it's got to be a lot faster than swiping your badge and so that's where speed is On its own is is absolutely essential and it has to be speed that's achievable on a mobile processor um, we've we've run this on um, on cheap Android tablets um, uh, old um, iPod 4s we've we've got uh, a variety of, of implementations of of this and speed is super important because the user experience will really suck if if this thing takes too long and you don't have time or the bandwidth to send the video to the cloud um, you've got to be able to uh, process locally 
and have a minimal RESTful API call to the service to get achieved. Um, let, let me just touch on one point. The uh, the organization, um, government organization called NIST, National Institution for Science and Technology, uh, runs a bake-off of facial recognition algorithms. They test, I think, twice a year, about 100 algorithms, and new entrants are coming along all the time. So this is like the Grand Prix racing activity of the industry and so, yeah, we, we are eagerly waiting the results of this latest submission. We submitted, I think, in late May or early June, and we haven't had the results back yet. But it, it reports on a number of things, not only the accuracy. And if you look at the graphs, the accuracy is kind of plateauing and the, a few in the top cohort are bunching together. And uh, we, we, we're, we're grateful that we're in that top cohort. But when we look at that top cohort of most accurate algorithms that can handle uh, the in-the-wild um, video case, uh, we turn out to be the fastest and we turn out to have the smallest model. So having a small model means that the model is more embeddable into client devices. And that's definitely where I want to take this technology. I want to take it as deeply into cameras as possible. And then there's a small little report that gets overlooked, and that's the analysis of all these algorithms for bias. And the way that NIST evaluates bias, it looks at your accuracy over a range of face types, face by gender, by age, by skin tone, by geographic origin, and to be good at this, you need a flat line of accuracy, constant accuracy across the spectrum of faces of humanity. And uh, you know that one of the industry's solutions from Amazon, the Amazon Recognition Service, was criticized for, for poor bias. Uh, yeah, or for that's high, right. high bias. Um, they su- they're, they're moderately accurate for white males, but for darker skinned females, they're not so accurate. And uh, we pride ourselves on having a very flat um, level of accuracy across face types. So how is SAFER uh, actually implemented? And I, I feel like we've sort of touched on it, but maybe you can connect the, the blocks here for us. So if, if you're a customer and you want to deploy this, well, you can go to the SAFER website. You actually download the platform right now and, and play with it. The, the minimal implementation could be an app on your phone that's connected to a cloud. And, well, I mean, that, that'll be kind of a test use case. For secure access in offices, it's, it's implemented on an Android or, a, or an iOS um, tablet. And we've got a number of ways of connecting to your door lock system. In many offices, there's a there's a door manager system that uh, we can send an API call to unlock the door, and so you can quickly get a facial recognition solution running alongside your badge reader, and before you know it, you'll see a behavioral change in your office, and people stop bringing their badges to work, and so now you 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 know you've improved things. How is it implemented? It is edge-based software that could run on a variety of platforms, Mac, Windows, Linux, processor in an Android, in a, in a Raspberry Pi form factor. The 
edge-based. If if you're running on a on a mobile phone, it's Android and iOS. And then, as I said, there's a cloud service that could run either in the cloud. We've got a multi-tenant cloud where you could start off with, but then if you have a super secure requirement, then that could be deployed in your database, in your data center, your own data center. And then we just come out with another SDK we call the Safer Embedded SDK for those developers that want to implement computer vision inside their own device, like a camera. And this means implement just the detection or also the recognition? Both, both the recognition. I think there's going to be a big announcement soon. I'm not sure when, but a large residential uh, home automation company uh, has implemented both detection and recognition inside um, um, home devices. So in order to, to detect, uh, to, to actually recognize faces inside the device, mm-hmm. then either that device should be connected to the internet or it needs to download the database of all the faces it needs to recognize, right? Yeah, so we think there's value in a completely untethered solution mm-hmm. that for privacy reasons, the database it resides on the device alone. It'll be a small database, maybe a hundred, maybe a few hundred, not the... 100,000, not the million-wide database that could exist in the cloud. Mm-hmm. But for use cases where you want it to be private, it could be completely local. So we're playing with those configurations. Um, different customers have different sensitivities. I think in the U.S., there's still a, a large sensitivity about privacy. Y- yeah, I mean, if, though- <laughs> if, if you mention <laughs> privacy, though, I mean... It, right. Even though we've got devices that are listening to uh, to every word, to everything we say, yeah, and, and choosing, <laughs> what, what <exactly>. privacy? <laughs> um, uh, just just don't mention her name here on the phone because she'll wake up and then she'll say, "I'm sorry, I don't understand that." Um, yeah. What? So um, uh, you know, you're talking about a system that, uh, as you walk by uh, security cameras, recognizes mm-hmm. your face from live video and can determine um, age and gender and race, you know, skin tone, and actually recognize uh, who you are. So, so I'm thinking all of our listeners out there, you know, are kind of getting freaked from, from privacy uh, concerns around this uh, t- technology. So, so what's your take on that? I, I, yeah, exactly. I, I want to just um, pick you up on one of those points. We do not determine ethnicity or so-called race or um, any unscientific classification of human beings. This is uh-huh. this is a very deliberate, very principled stand that Real Networks took. And if you know anything about Rob Glazer and his, his ethics and his value system, when we started this, he said, okay, this is going to be a very sensitive domain that we're going to be engineering in. And as engineers, we have a responsibility to start to think about how the technology is going to be used and create a set of ethical guidelines which we feel are acceptable use cases. You can't just as an engineer say, well, I was just doing my job. You know, I, I was just building the missile. I don't know how it's going yeah. to be used. Um, you know, we've, we've had history books full of people saying I was just doing my job and um, – we as people who ourselves have a history, as engineers, we are best placed to at least make 
uh, values well known. And so in this product, we took a principled stand not to assess people by ethnicity or by so-called race. I say so-called race because I believe it's unscientific. It's it was it's a notion that was debunked in the Victorian era. And so when you look at those companies that have chosen to classify people in those ways, the way they have to do it is by having a cube farm of minimum wage individuals look at photographs and say, oh, that's a Mexican, oh, that's a Chinese, oh, no, that was Vietnamese, oh, that one looks a bit Japanese. So you are embedding into your model, into the ground truth of your model, all of the uh, biases and stereotypes that are pervasive in human society. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. You talk about bias. You know, you you right. mentioned the fact that your solution is the most flatlined in terms of not being biased. And yet, because, you know, this isn't a space yeah. I'm in, so I wasn't even aware that this process goes on. But that's amazing to me that there's other solutions, whereas you just said there's a person, right. a human who's saying exactly who's, who's classifying, classifying right. you know based on based on ethnicity and wow, and then what what is, for for, for what purpose do you, yeah, for what right. for what are, purpose? are you going yeah, to correlate yeah. that I, with their credit score their trustworthiness well <laughs> exactly and the argument is you know i mean you know in certain marketing circles well but you know there's demographics and and but yeah. is that really true anymore <laughs> you know, i don't know exactly anyway we could get off on a whole nother tangent right. here but this is fascinating yeah but 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 regarding the 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 general you know privacy okay basically it's a face recognition software so mm-hmm. what if tomorrow you know some government buys this uh, service and starts to track its uh, citizens using uh, your software is this something that's yeah. you know like beyond limits for you yeah i mean it's called out in our ethical guidelines so we we have made a very deliberate policy we've made we, we created a set, set of guidelines that guides us as to who we'll sell to and who we won't sell to and uh, and and what use cases we, we feel are acceptable use cases. But let me let me tell you that we start off all of our user stories with a with an opt-in capability. And that's why we created the Safer SDK. It allows you to get your guests or your staff to opt in to enroll their face and and thereby grant permission for the system to recognize you. The anonymous recognition is something that people feel naturally um, skittish about. The European government has actually created a set of laws, the GDPR laws that, that govern the how biometrics can be gathered anonymous from unwitting passers-by. It has to start with a with an opt-in capability. If you are going if you have a camera that's making biometric that's capable of biometric readings, you uh, are not allowed to retain that information unless you have the explicit permission of the subject. So you have maybe a few seconds where you can evaluate has this face is does this face belong to someone that's already enrolled in the system? Let's say, for instance, you've got a, a loyalty program at a hotel and part of that loyalty program, there's an app, it, the loyalty app, 
where people can enroll their face to use the unattended lobby. So they can automatically check in as they walk into the hotel. So draw, imagine this, you walk into your favorite hotel and a camera picks you up, recognizes you as you step into the lobby. You get a push notification to your loyalty app, says, hey, draw, we've automatically checked you into your reservation. Here is the code that you show to the camera. Here's your, here's your room number. Here's the co code you show to the elevator. Here's the code you show to your door, and it'll unlock for you. That sort of thing, you you would have you would have opted into that. Yeah, in the, the beginning, yes. But then, as as I walk into another hotel, and uh, and suddenly yeah. I get a push message from my first hotel saying, "What are you doing here? Come to us." That would be kind of uh, <laughs> spooky. <laughs> that would be rude. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. No, drawer, and all this is coming yeah. up on your and the favorite one we AR goggles yeah. that you will be wearing, and and it's right. <laughs> and it's your overlay to the world. <laughs> oh, this is this is yeah, this is awesome. Well, you know, five G is uh, on everyone's mind, uh, obviously, and you know, a lot of networks are making serious investments. I read on the website that that you have, uh, you know, in fact, you're saying that safe is even optimized, you know, for 5G. So talk to us about some of the applications and, and use cases that you're envisioning, uh, you know, that 5G in particular maybe can open up or, you know, just bring some efficiencies. Yeah, so architecturally, 5G maps onto the architectural structure. So safer map, map, maps onto the architectural structure of 5G. You, you see that um, in the 5G world, they're starting to talk about MEC, the um, uh, multi-tenant edge computing capability. So that means at the, the cell tower, the 5G cell tower, there'll be compute capability where apps could run. So, so for smart city applications and the like, um, you can imagine facial recognition or maybe just the detection running at that edge and the recognition up in the cloud. It maps on nicely. The other component where I think 5G is going to be quite disruptive for at least the surveillance industry and the residential security industry, and maybe all of IoT. When you look at some of the home security solutions, the cellular connection is the failover connection. Your primary connection is the home Wi-Fi connection. But I think with 5G, coming along, it's going to be low enough cost and it's going to be high enough speed and reliability that it becomes the primary connection. And what does that do? That actually enables some interesting things. It's, it's over the top. It's over the top of your home network. So that means the connection is a lot simpler. Yeah, that's right. you, you know this horrible dance that you have to do when you um, – get a new IoT device into your home. You have to take your uh, your phone and put it onto the network. Yeah, and teach it the password. That is, that is being projected. Exactly. And it's just such a horrible pain. Imagine now just being able to screw the device to the wall and it's connected to your cellular account. And then the, the just the speed, the speed and the low latency of 5G, um, I've got a lot of uh, hopes that uh, it uh, benefits this this application, but, but also the applications that, that you and I know and love, um, the video. 
Yeah, I, I I think there's a lot of interesting 5G applications, as you say. You know, when the camera is now fully um, self-contained with with the 5G radio, with you know the facial detection, facial recognition. It seems like that now is what can unlock some of these, you know, whether it's stadium security, large venue security, or just some, just some super interesting. There's probably even, you know, applications we haven't conceived of yet around ways that can be integrated into entertainment and, you know, augmented. Uh, I, I was, I was thinking drawer of our interview yesterday. I won't, I won't give it all away because uh, it hasn't been published yet, but we talked to someone who's developed just some super fascinating technology that is, you know, metadata, and then you can use it for mapping commerce you know, out of video. And so you think if you, if you extend that to faces, you know, now there's a whole nother, we can get into like privacy and, you know, there's lots of things, but the applications for all of it, it's really exciting to me, I guess, you know, <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, yes, there's the securities kind of surveillance, there's the privacy questions. And some people, you know, are just really hyper focused on that. But, you know, for me, I just see incredible um, user benefits that are really, really exciting yeah and and i'm sure there's also uh some applications uh, directly more directly in media and entertainment so you know we we started out this discussion talking about uh entertainment you know the real audio the real video uh codex and then we talked a bit about uh, the new uh real media codec um but as as we dive into facial recognition I think uh, many of our listeners would be interested to know because they come from the media and entertainment uh, field, you know, Hollywood movies and content. How applicable is the safer technology to um, uh, recognizing faces in in movies and TV shows? And and is there an interesting uh, use case for that that you see? The media and entertainment applications, imagine as you're encoding video that you can also recognize the, the faces of actors in, in the video. And the metadata on a frame-by-frame -frame basis is embedded in the, in the video stream. So what can you do with that? Well, we demonstrated within the, the real media tool stack, within the, the streaming stack, um, navigating by face. So on the player, your fast forward button in in the in face mode, you, you select a face and then click fast forward and it skips to the next scene with that face in it, with that actor in it. So you're binge watching the 73 episodes of uh, Game of Thrones and you want to go, you know, you'll skip through where your favorite character appears. That's a, an interesting use case. But that's that's great. That's That improves the user navigation. But how can it improve the monetization of video? So now you've got metadata that tells you who and what is in the frame. How can that better target advertising? How could it help you with all sorts of things with t-commerce and uh, and the improved monetization of OTT video? I think that's that's going to be another goldmine of uh, opportunity. Yeah, I, th I think that's a, a very interesting uh, opportunity. And uh, Mark, I think we should uh, bring together our two guests from the last two recordings, because one of them knows how to generate metadata automatically while encoding video, while the other one knows how to embed that metadata and use it in very immersive applications. 
So I think they should talk to each other, right? We're bringing people together here. That's right. Reza, if you're up for it, I think we're going to have at least now two additional episodes with you. Excellent. Okay. I guess we should probably wrap it up there. Reza, thank you for joining us. This was just a real pleasure. And uh, we really appreciate you sharing all about Safer. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you so much, Draw. And I look forward to being on your podcast again in the future. Yeah, we're looking forward to it uh, very much. And until next time, happy encoding. Happy encoding, everybody. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders Podcast, a production of Beamer Limited. To begin using Beamer's Codex today, go to beamer.com forward slash free to receive up to 100 hours of no-cost HEVC and H264 transcoding every month.